please read the book. Go back to the actual source material. I'm telling you, this is not a big book. It will not take you long to get through it, and you will be a richer and better person for having gone through it. Even if you do disagree with it, you will have a better understanding of what the argument is and what it rests on. You're listening to The Corbett Report. How is it that a group of 535 congressmen can control the lives of 330 million Americans? How is it that one man named Joseph can starve millions of Ukrainians or one man named Adolf murder millions? How can a man named Franklin kidnap and intern hundreds of thousands of Japanese Americans while a man named Winston murders millions with the Royal Air Force? Welcome to Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone today. We will be discussing the politics of obedience the discourse of voluntary servitude with James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Two must-see videos of James. One is called Who is Bill Gates? Terrific. And the other is The Secret Life of Timothy McVeigh. You'll see the links below. James, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me on. And might I just interject that I'm very jealous of your copy of The Discourse of Voluntary Servitude, because I got one of these ridiculous, oversized, huge print editions for the legally blind for some reason. So I, I want a nice, sleek copy I could carry around in my pocket. Well, well and you have to hide everything you believe in. These ones are r really nice to uh, to, to keep uh, to keep in your Keep in your back pocket. So, by the way, uh, let's start off with the name of the author. <laughs> what is this author's name? I, I'm, I'm going to take a shot. I think it's Etienne de la Beauté. I tried asking J. Yappy. Close <laughs> enough, right? Well, okay. Let's let's go from the Marie Rothbard introduction, the footnote, or the very first footnote on the very first page. Properly pronounced, not as might be thought, la Boétie, but rather la Boétie with the hard T, as it was pronounced in the Perigord dialect of the region in which Labuetti lived. The definitive discussion of the proper pronunciation may be found in Paul Bonifon, Ouvre Complète de Tiens de Labuetti, pages 385-86. Of course, of course, Murray Rothbard has the reference from some, you know, hundred-year-old book to the exact page number of where you can find the definitive discussion of the pronunciation. Anyway, I found that... Helpful, of course, because that is a question that our anglicized tongues would have uh, some some difficulty with this. Call them whatever you want, but Etienne de Labuetti is apparently the proper pronunciation. Terrific. Let's, now that we know the author's name, let's get into the content, starting on page 42. Wait, 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 wait. Before we start, yeah. before we start, may I interject? I just want to point out that you, you got in touch with me a couple weeks ago to see if I was interested in a conversation, and one of the uh, possible conversations you put on the table was a discussion of this book, and I jumped at the chance precisely because, for people who do not know, The Discourse of Voluntary Servitude is a 500-year-old text that is every bit as relevant to the problems we face today as it was 500 years ago, as it would have been a thousand years before that, or a thousand years from hence. It, this is absolutely timeless, incredibly important, and gets to the root of the problem and the solution all in one swift blow. And this is a short book. You can read this easily. So I suggest anyone out there who hasn't read it yet, please do so. You don't even have to buy a copy. It is completely available for free in any ebook form you want online. So please read this book. 
totally uh, totally agree there. So on page 42, after the introduction, he says, for the present, I should to understand how it happens that so many men, so many villages, so many cities, so many nations sometimes suffer under a single tyrant who has no power, who has no more power than the power they give them, who is able to harm them only to the extent to which they have the willingness to bear with him, who could do them absolutely no injury unless they preferred to put up with him rather than contradict him. Surely a striking situation. James, is it the courage or desire what is uh, he saying here? Uh, yes, let's let's get right to the heart of this because this is the key and central insight of this entire text. And uh, for me, the money quote is this. Um, he's talking about why people put up with tyranny and suffer under it. And he says, they, the people, suffer plundering, wantonness, cruelty, not from an army, not from a barbarian horde on account of whom they must shed their blood and sacrifice their lives, but from a single man, not from a Hercules, nor from a Samson, but from a single little man. Too frequently, this same little man is the most cowardly and effeminate in the nation, a stranger to the powder of battle and hesitant on the sands of the tournament, not only without energy to direct men by force, but with hardly enough virility to bed with a common woman. Shall we call subject subjection to such a leader cowardice? Shall we say that those who serve him are cowardly and faint-hearted? If two, if three, if four do not defend themselves from the one, we might call that circumstance surprising, but nevertheless conceivable. In such a case, one might be uh, justified in suspecting a lack of courage. But if a hundred, if a thousand endure the caprice of a single man, should we not rather say that they lack not the courage, but the desire to rise against him, and that such an attitude indicates indifference rather than cowardice. This is the key cent central insight of this text. This is the takeaway that it is not fear. It is not fear that keeps people in check. Let me say that again. It is not fear that keeps people from rising up against oppressors and oppressive regimes. It is acceptance, consent, willing desire to participate in the system of oppression. And the only thing that can truly end that oppression is, is the easiest thing of all, which is to stop desiring it. Well, you would think it's the easiest thing to, uh, of all, but as I think is one of the key central tenets of my work, one of the most important things that can be done is the revolution of the mind because we have so completely internalized the structures of power and the oppression from above that we have come to not only think that that is acceptable, but to actually desire to have those systems of oppression. That is the central insight that the uh, Labuetti comes up with here and that Absolutely, this is the key to solving the problem of tyranny of all sorts, is to stop obeying, stop going along with it. This is not about fear. There is nothing to fear from, in this case, as Liberty is writing about, as the, the dictates of a single man. In the case of our modern, enlightened, democratic age, it's the caprices of a few hundred elected officials who are our servants and all of the other garbage that are, is spewed to justify their rule over us. We do not have to consent. We do not have to comply. This is the central, fundamental tenet of 
the idea of independence celebrated every Independence Day, right? It, we didn't, no one needed any permission but from the crown in order to rise up and declare their own country. No, we do this. We take this stand. It is, it is within our right to claim our own powers. It's such a simple thing, but it's so difficult to get people to see. Uh, and this is, I think, the central part of the part one of this book is uh, Labuetti hammering this home time and time again, saying that obviously there is no need of fighting to overcome this single tyrant, for he is automatically defeated if the country refuses consent to its own enslavement. It is not necessary to deprive him of anything, but simply to give him nothing. There is no need that the country make an effort to do anything for itself, provided it does nothing against itself. And in order to have liberty, uh, nothing more is needed than to long for it. If only a simple act of the will is necessary, is there any nation in the world that considers a single wish too high a price to pay in order to recover rights, which it ought to be ready to redeem at the cost of its blood, rights such that their loss might must bring all men of honor to the point of feeling life to be unendurable and death itself a deliverance? Uh, he does go on uh, on this point and, and elaborates it in a number of important ways in part one, but this is the central insight of this work, and I really hope people really internalize this and understand the incredibly powerful ramifications of this insight and the fundamental importance of disobedience. Absolutely. The um, off. Then uh, you, you'll get the critique of, well, of course, they're in charge. They have the power because they have the military. So the commander in chief is in charge of this a bunch of people with a bunch of tanks. So obviously that's where power comes from, not from, you know, the minds of the masses. How do you respond? Well, first of all, even if we're just going to go with real politique, we should know that it is, in fact, not the commander-in-chief who commands the army. It is almost, in all situations, the other way around. It is obviously the men with the guns and the desire and ability to use them who are commanding the country. Um, and usually the president or what, whatever uh, title you want to confer on that person, it's just the fig leaf of, oh, look, here's the, the separate distance that makes this all justified. But no, it's generally speaking, in almost all societies throughout almost all of human history, it is the military leaders who are uh, calling the shots more so. But then, of course, you get to the deeper level of reality in which, no, it is the men paying the bills of the soldiers who are really the ones in charge. And who's the ones paying the bills of the soldiers? It is the bankers creating the money out of nothing. Um, so there are several layers deep that you can go as to who is really pulling the strings here. But the point is that these politicians that are paraded out in front of us are not in charge. The commander-in-chief is not in charge of the of the country, let alone the military, uh, that everyone just automatically, well, of course, he's the commander, so we all have to obey him, and all the generals are, are cowering in fear of this valiant commander-in-chief. No, again, this is the point that what Labuddy is making. No, this situation does not apply, because absolutely any one of these military men could easily rise up and kill this commander-in-chief at any time and take the power for themselves. Why don't they do that, and that is because this is a system that is based on uh, subjection to leadership in people's minds, and he goes on in part three to make an exceptionally important point about why this is the case. Why do people go along with this? It's not simply, again, it's not fear. 
And it's, uh, it, it, but what is, what is the desire? What do people actually get out of it? And he does have an answer to that, but I won't jump the gun because we're going through this, I assume, chronologically. But uh, that's an important point too. No, the commander-in-chief is not commander in, in, in any real sense. It's only in the minds of the people who listen to his dictates. Correct. Uh, th- that uh, point of view, uh, you know, well, he runs the military who has all the guns, does not account for why the military listens to this person called the president and not that guy called the pope and why they follow this thing called constitution and not Dianetics by L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, it, you don't have the masses saying, well, you have to obey Dianetics. You have to abide by the Ten Commandments. It's this It's this set of rules. And this is the key insight that he gets is that it really is in the mind of the masses still, even whether it's dictatorship or a menarchist state, it still is in the minds of the masses. He, on page 60, he goes into how do the few the single one, create the legitimacy in the minds of the masses, saying, it is true that in the beginning men submit under constraint and by force, but those who come after them obey without regret and fulfillingly what their predecessors had done because they had to. Nevertheless, it is clear enough that the powerful influence of custom is in no respect more compelling then in this, namely, habituation to subjugation, custom becomes the first reason for voluntary servitude. Response to custom being the first reason of voluntary servitude. Yes, again, such an incredibly profound and important point that seems so simplistic once you realize it. But yes, humans are very adaptable creatures to whatever social context they are put into. This is the entire point of social engineering. This is how our society can be moved from fundamental bedrock principles that were held steadfastly by people a century ago that people fought and died for in previous wars, completely disregarded and completely cast to the wayside now, whether that's to do with whatever, rights from uh, freedom from search and seizure and things that, oh, you know, whatever, the NSA can do whatever it wants and they're keeping us safe from the bad guys. Things that would have been literally unthinkable in our grandparents' generation are now completely 100% taken for granted. Why is that? It's because people are adaptable. They get used to certain social contexts and conditions, and they are brought up in certain ways, and they start to think it's normal. He makes this point repeatedly uh, in part two, where he's talking about different ways people can be essentially habituated into tyranny. If you're raised in a system where, well, this is the way it's always been. We listen to the leader, and here's the leader. Then it's almost impossible to imagine any other way. I mean, this is just how human society works, isn't it? Um, Because unfortunately, not only can we be habituated to certain patterns of thought, we can also, uh, more insidiously, we can come to believe that that is in fact natural, that that is the only way to conceptualize this. Now, I like in the introduction to this that Murray Rothbard points out that in fact that is a, in some ways it's a hopeful um, thing, because if... Uh, tyranny were to be eliminated, if we could get rid of these governments that seek to oppress us, uh, then it would be very quickly that people would be habituated into freedom, and they would think the idea of instituting a government over men would be just so stupid and unthinkable. How did people ever believe that? We could be habituated into that line of thought. Um, But unfortunately, we do not live in such a system, so people are enslaved in their minds. And uh, I very much like the, uh, the classical illusion that he gives uh, in this regard, where he talks about uh, Lycurgus. Um, 
He said Lycurgus, the lawgiver of Sparta, is reported to have reared two dogs at the same time um, by fattening one in the kitchen and training the other in the fields to the sound of the bugle and the horn, thereby to de- demonstrate to the Lacedaemonians, sorry, my classical uh, uh, antiqu- antiquity knowledge is not that great, Lacedaemonians, that men too develop according to their early habits. He set the two dogs in the open marketplace, and between them he placed a bowl of soup and a hare. One ran to the bowl of soup, the other to the hare. Yet they were, as he maintained, born brothers of the same parents. And this, again, is showing that people can be habituated into different, entire different lifestyles that bring with them different ideas, different forms of action that will ultimately foster us and develop us into different people based on the way that we are raised. And if we are raised with the ever-loving nanny state always there to give you whatever you need at any time, and should you ever feel uncomfortable, don't worry, mommy, mommy government will come and wipe your nose for you or wipe your bottom for you. But daddy government will come along and tell you what to do if you ever step out of line. That's the carrot and stick, which is we are raised in in this nanny state system. Um, and that leads to essentially fatted calves who, who go along with that system. And when they are put in that situation, look, you can strive for this and you can achieve it. Or here it is in a little plate for you and we'll just feed it to you. Whatever gruel we give you, you'll accept. And most people have been habituated to just accept the gruel because it's there. And well, this is the way it happens. We get fed by mummy government. And that's literal as well as figurative, of course. But I think it speaks to the point that people... People themselves can be habituated into different forms of action uh, or inaction based on the way that they are raised. It is all about custom. Correct. And the longer you've been doing the custom, the harder it is. As Lou Rockwell likes to say, there's no nice way to tell someone they've believed a lie for 10, 20, 30, 50, 60 years. Uh, Those 1,000 Facebook posts, those are all irrelevant. It's like, oh, gosh, my brain has to make up an excuse for uh, for, for why I was right. He goes on to say the the second reason that people believe in the legitimacy of a king or the few ruling the many, duping the masses into believing their rule is wise, just, and benevolent. He says on page 66, they never undertake an unjust policy, even one of some importance without prefacing it with some pretty speech concerning the public welfare and the common good. James, are you familiar with... Uh, 500 years later, welfare and the common good being used to justify statism and an increase in aggression against peaceful people. Yeah, yeah. Where have I heard that that language invoked? Oh, wait, every time a politician opens their mouths, right? Um, I was going to say, when have we not heard it? Yeah, it's the exactly only thing right. that it, it's from from Gavin Newsom to George Bush to Newt Gingrich. It's, it's their go-to. Right. And if anyone wants a deconstruction of that in a... Uh, I, I want to say pithy, at least humorous way. Um, of course, they can turn to the writings and observations of... Uh, his name is going to escape me. Every election is an advanced uh, auction on, on stolen goods. H.L. Uh, Mencken? H.L. Mencken, yes. Thank you. Mencken, uh, yeah. who has very cynical things to say about democracy and its real worth. Um, but yes, uh, again, this is an important insight for 500 years ago that, of course... The Yes, the people who want to rule over you will always give sort of lip service to the sorts of things that people can believe in as a nice fluffy ideal. Does anyone really believe in them, though? I think that's the question. I, I mean, of course, we can sit here and be cynical and say, well, you know, they're just lying to you. 
But do you think there's anyone out there with two brain cells to rub together that doesn't realize that at this point, that these people are just selling you a load of garbage that will uh, smooth things over for them? But sometimes, again, some people want to believe that. They want uh, they want to at least have some easy, easy thing that they can point to to say, look, they're going to provide for us. They, they care about us, so let's do what they say. Because it's an easy excuse for doing what they say. And I think that's probably going more towards the deeper psychological meaning, which, again, raises the question of why. What do people get out of this system of tyranny that, uh, that, that seems to benefit them enough that they will play these mental games with themselves? And sometimes it's harder than others. Like if you're not accustomed to shutting down gyms and Bill de Blasio going to the gym a couple days later or shutting down wineries and Gavin Newsom's winery thriving. Uh, I mean, it, it, then it's, a, it's sort of like a peek into a window of Narnia. It's like, oh, well, look at that. That's totally unjust. It's really hard to say war is mass murder, taxation is theft, reg- the draft is slavery, yada, yada. That's so hard to you know mix. But when it's like, all right, if I like my health care, I can keep it. You promise? Okay, I lost it. Okay, this I should be able to process. Um, the, some are a uh, lot easier than others. He then goes into divinity and adoration on page 70. Tyrants, in order to strengthen their power, have made every effort to train their people, their people not only in obedience and servility toward themselves, but also in adoration. I see this so often with admiring the politicians where they're either holding the baby or they're so nice or they're so comforting or they're so kind and virtuous and all these other things. Do you still see divinity and adoration today? Absolutely, yes. And in fact, this actually goes to the heart of the presentation that I made at Anarchapoco this year um, about sort of the, the divine nature of the state and the fact that it is not simply an analogy. There is actually a deeper psychological issue going on between our need for religion and religious adoration and our need for government. There is a real connection, an actual historical linkage there that I went through in my presentation that hopefully will be released to the general public soon. And when it is, my viewers will know about it. Um, but yes, absolutely. The div- the, the divine and, and religious iconography surrounding the divine nature of these presidents and prime ministers, these leaders, persists to this day. Anyone can see any number of examples of that. Um, and obviously, in the American political context, there is uh, there's always the. I mean, every single president that in my entire life I've seen, there's the picture of them with the kind of this presidential seal around their head that looks like a crown or a, 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 a halo kind of thing. There's always that kind of imagery. But now it's even gotten stupider in the last few years, because of course everything's gotten stupider in the past few years, and we have the literal like prayer candles and votaries and things for um, Ginsburg. Or uh, Mueller, remember when Mueller was going to be the big saint who was going to deliver us from the evil of Trump and everything, and people were literally praying to him with their literal votive candles and everything. It's just nonsense, but yes, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't even have to go that far, but I think that shows that there is a linkage in, in the people's minds, the, the adoration, the divine almost praying to the state. But again, it doesn't have to literally go that far. People, of course, do put these people up on pedestals. And that's one of the things about the whole Trump phenomenon. Although, obviously, I have no, I don't care about Trump at all whatsoever. And he's just another part of the clique that's playing his own game. But one thing that I, I appreciate about the Trump phenomenon is that it it, it it's almost it's almost a desecration 
of the thing that the statists hold most valuable, the sacred office of the president. This is a holy man who who's so much above the political frame. He, so, he, he walks on water. They, they praise this office of the president. Trump has desecrated that. I don't, I don't think the P-tape was real, but in a certain sense, he's peeing all over the Oval Office. And this drives statists insane with anger because how dare you desecrate this holy office of the president in my mind hey great hey it's just showing that this is all iconography it's all in your mind you're idiots for believing that it's anything other than showbiz and spectacle and uh i if anything good comes out of the the this uh, trump era i think that's it yeah, you you definitely saw that in the debates when he goes, Marco implied if my hands are small, something else is small. I can tell you there's no problem there. Everyone was like, oh, my God, what's happening? And I'm like, finally, a candidate I could get behind. It's like I would prefer logic and reason and non-aggression. But if I can't get that, delegitimizing the state is kind of a, uh, a nice substitute. Um uh, he goes on to discuss distraction and bribes on page 65, saying that plays, farces, spectacles, gladiators, strange beasts, medals, pictures, and other such opiates. These were, for ancient peoples, the bait towards slavery, the price of their liberty, the instruments of tyranny. The fool, going on to say, the fools did not realize they were merely recovering a portion of their stolen property as opposed to look at the great thing that the state inherently creates. Ending with, the mob has always behaved in this way, eagerly, open to bribes. That is a Mencken quote uh, <laughs> before he existed, if I ever heard one. Thoughts on distractions, bribes, bread, and circuses. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, so the bribes, I think, goes to the, the heart of what he's getting at in part three, sort of why does the system continue to function? But um, as to the bread and circuses, obviously this is a, uh, I mean, an old tactic that we've heard about since since Roman times. But I think uh, Labuetti really articulates it quite well and gets to the heart of this incredibly important but easy way of placating so much of the masses. And he uh, again turns to antiquity for his story. He says, uh, this method, method tyrants use of stultifying their subjects cannot be more clearly observed than in what Cyrus did with the Lydians after he had taken Sardis, their chief city, and had at his mercy the captured Croesus, their fabulously rich king. When news was brought to him that the people of Sardis had rebelled, it would have been easy for him to reduce them by force. But being unwilling either to sack such a fine city or to maintain an army there to police it, he thought of an unusual expedient for reducing it. He established in it brothels, taverns, and public games, and issued the proclamation that the inhabitants were to enjoy them. He found this type of he found this type of garrison so effective that he never again had to draw the sword against the Lydians. And that is the tactic in a nutshell. It is absolutely bread and circuses, distractions, getting people to not even think about rebelling and whatever, politics, who cares about any of that stuff? I've got this entertainment out here for me. And uh, obviously that continues to be used to this day, devastatingly effectively. Perhaps the best way of really understanding it in that sort of hyper, uh, hyper-realized way that uh, can only happen in science fiction is through Brave New World. It is that, that world of the Soma and all of the distractions that just keep people 100% content with their station that they have been assigned to in life. And uh, it's, again, this is not a, a startlingly original insight. It's not uh, something that people haven't noticed before, but I think Labuetti puts it perfectly uh, succinctly here. 
Alrighty. In short, authority can only be grounded in the acceptance of its subjects. It need not be active, but passive. So that is another interesting insight that we have here. So it's not uh, it's because people are constantly going out and waving flags. There's a large portion of people that just it's just their default. It's sort of their custom. I guess we're back to already. Um, I thought I thought that was really interesting that it need not be active participation. I'm a voter. I mean, most people don't vote in America, but the average person sees the state as a legitimate institution. They pass a law. You have to abide by it. If they repeal it, then you can do it. But until then, they have the right to cage you. So that is definitely definitely getting into the uh, mindset there. Any comments on that uh, short summary that Rothbard provides? Well, in fact, um, what you just stated there uh, as the way that people think of law and lawmaking and law giving is actually goes to this heart of what we're talking about, of people becoming accustomed to something so that they naturalize it and can't even conceive that it can be done in a different way. Because uh, the the model that we have in our current society is, yes, there are these lawmakers, these legislators who go into their sacred hall of the legislator le legislature and they pass this law and it becomes the law of the land and then it must be enforced. And that's the way that we think of laws being created at this point. Whereas, of course, there are natural law and common law systems that have existed for much longer than this particular model of law coming from a legislature and a lawmaker who comes in and writes, signs something on a piece of paper and that becomes law. Uh, if people want more elaboration on that, I would suggest they check out the, uh, the, the writings and speeches of Stefan Kinsella, who goes through this legal history uh, in greater detail and points out, yeah, there are, there are different legal systems and the idea that legislatures go in and write laws on pieces of paper and that becomes law is a system that we are accustomed to now, so much so that people believe that is what lawmaking is, whereas, no, 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 there's there's a completely different system that has developed through cases that are tried and then uh, decisions are made and that becomes case law and it builds on each other. And of course, it's done in a community that, that has a tradition behind it. So there is a common law tradition. That's a very different thing. And again, because people don't have their mindset in that, they've become accustomed to this idea that, well, how can we have laws without the lawmaker or lawmakers who are have the magical pen that can magically sign the magic piece of paper that magically becomes law? There's no other way to do it. Well, actually, there is, and it's been around for thousands of years. It's just you don't know about it. Why don't you know about it? Because you were never taught about it. Why weren't you taught about it? Because it's in the interests of the people who want those positions of power not to let you understand that there are ways to do this without those positions of power existing. And that's one that you kind of should be able to see. I mean, you go from Arizona to California, like I did the other day, and I didn't have to go read all the California laws. I think, I think I've read one law, and it was this immigration law in Arizona that everyone was up in arms about for three weeks and then on to something else after. I haven't read the laws. I don't know where it says don't murder, uh, don't steal, and all this other stuff. But there is a custom of uh, these people are— ought to go to jail. Here are some pieces of, I, I just wonder how many pieces of legislation the average person has read. Virtually zero, but we're able to go to other countries and it all works out without uh, saying, needing someone to write down words of what we do when uh, when we get there. So as far as solutions goes, uh, with withdrawing consent and delegitimizing the state. So one, uh, two people I think are, are great at this. Michael Humer, professor at University of Boulder, Colorado, wrote the problem of 
political authority, an examination on the right to rule and the duty to obey, where he just uses common sense morality, saying, um, is it okay if, uh, look, Corbett Report is a great uh, spot that has a lot of information uh, and really benefits people. Is it okay if we force people to fund it against their will with the threat of caging them, even though it's a great source of educational information, no doubt there, do we have the right to force people? Do, do we have the right to conscript them into working against their will, even if it is great? Well, no. And for the same reason. Yes, the yes, we do. I'll right write to. it on my magic piece of paper that you have to give me money to f- fund the Corbett Report and that'll make it law. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course no, not. Finally. Of course Justice at last. The other one is a gentleman named Larkin Rose, who I have had 10 hours of conversation with literally on this show, um, where he says um, it's important to apply yourself consistently to the state. For example, if you don't have the right to do something, how do you have the right to vote for a king or a president or a politician to do it on your behalf? If it's murder for you to do it, well, you joining a group called the military group and putting on camouflage, now it's okay? Uh, no, of, of course not. Jo- neither is joining a group called Congress. My favorite solution that you have brought to the table, or not brought to the table, but you've really made light of, is laughing at tyrants. What is laughing at tyrants? I'm so glad you brought that up, actually. Yes, I mean, we have to delegitimize, especially in the minds of people who still hold reverence for these sacred offices. We have to delegitimize the state and its role in society. And there are many ways to do that. And you've pointed out a couple of important ones there through logic and reason and evidence and talking to people and moralizing and and understanding the roots of what we believe and why we believe it. But human beings are not robots. We do not function simply on logic. You know, A plus B equals C goes in and the, the, oh, 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 the state doesn't exist anymore. That's generally not how it's going to happen. An incredibly effective, an incredibly powerful tool against tyranny is satirizing and mocking these would-be kings and emperors and gods among us who have these special powers. No, they are ordinary people. So actually, something that was exceptionally effective, I don't know what you were quoting at the very beginning, but calling these people Franklin and Winston and Joseph, rather than president or, you know, emperor or giving them these titles and, uh, and giving them reverence and full names. No, they're just men. They're just average men. And in fact, as Lovebody says, they don't even have the virility to bed the common woman kind of thing. Uh, these are, yes, these are objects of ridicule and satire. And that is an exceptionally important and effective way of delegitimizing the state in people's minds. That is the point of laughing at tyrants. And I'm glad you pointed that out because I just recently reposted um, some of my old material, including some of my old satirizing material, just making fun of these politicians. And of course, inevitably, every time I ever do anything with satire, with mockery, with humor, oh, James, oh, why do you have to descend to this level? You're usually so rational. And no, this is an exceptionally important point uh, and part of who we are as human beings, how we function, and an really important tool in our tool belt that we should not discard because, oh, we have to be perfectly reasonable and rational and make our arguments in in formal logic at all times. No, 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 no. We have to speak to people's understanding that has always existed. Satire has always been an exceptionally important part of undermining power structures, and that's why it is 
in every authoritarian structure, it is outlawed, it is banned, it, they try to get rid of it, they chop people's heads off for, for doing that. There is a reason for that, because it's an important way of undermining. I want to speak, while we're on solutions, also to an important point that, uh, that Rothbard points out in his introduction, where he talks about the prime task of education, um, educating people about the real nature of these, uh, the, these, the state, the government. Um, but he, he puts it in, a, in an important light. He says, the prime task of education, then, is not simply abstract insight into governmental errors in advancing the general welfare, but debamboozling the public on the entire nature and procedures of the despotic state. In that task, Labwetti also speaks to us in his stress on the importance of a perceptive vanguard elite of libertarian and anti-statist intellectuals. The role of this cadre to grasp the essence of statism and to desanctify the state in the eyes and minds of the rest of the population is crucial to the potential success of any movement to bring about a free society. It becomes, therefore, a prime libertarian task to discover, coalesce, nurture, and advance its cadre, a task of which all too many libertarians remain completely ignorant. And unfortunately, I think as true today as when uh, Rothbard penned those words many decades ago. Um, And finally, while we're talking about the solution aspect of this, we have to get to another important point of the problem, uh, as articulated, as I I alluded to, in part three of uh, this treatise, where um, he talks about another exceptionally important aspect of this. Yes, in order to defeat the tyrant, we have to make people stop desiring the tyranny. But why do they desire to live under tyranny? And he lays it out again in a very insightful um, passage where he says that uh, it isn't just the, the tyrant himself. He says, five or six have always had access to the tyrant's ear and have either gone to him of their own accord or else have been summoned by him to, his, to be accomplices in his cruelties, companions in his pleasures, pander to his lusts and sharers in his plunders. These six manage their chief so successfully that he comes to be held accountable not only for his own misdeeds, but even for theirs. The six have 600 who profit under them, and with the 600 they do what they have accomplished with their tyrant. The 600 maintain under them 6,000, whom they promote in rank, upon whom they confer the government of provinces or the direction of finances, in order that they may serve as instruments of avarice and cruelty, executing orders at the proper time and working such havoc all around that they could not last except under the shadow of the 600, nor be exempt from law and punishment except through their influence. And then he eventually talks about when this point is reached, through big favors or little ones, that large profits or small are obtained under a tyrant, there are found almost as many people to whom tyranny seems advantageous as, as those to whom liberty would seem desirable. And that is an exceptionally important point of this. I think this speaks to what uh, Giedra Griffin has uh, articulated as the rings within rings way that secret societies function. No, not everyone involved in an organization like the CFR is all working towards some master plan for global government. No, but there are there is that central crew of people who have the ear of the, the king, the tyrant, whatever. In this case, maybe it's the US Congress generally. But anyway, they have the ear. And they are whispering in that ear. Uh, and around them, they have a larger group who directly depends on them for their sustenance. And around them, there's an even larger group. And those, the rings expand, and a little bit less, obviously, falls from the table at each level. But somebody is getting something from each level of this system, and it expands and expands until it encompasses most of the society. And although 
you and I, and I, I'm sure many of the people listening to this audience don't directly know a president, prime minister, whatever, emperor, but we, we probably do know people who are employed in state government or in provincial government or in some some level of some part of the structure that, that benefits directly from the things that uh, accrue from that, that, that trough of power uh, one way or another. Or we know someone who works in the defense industry or whatever it is. So there's a lot of people who get caught up in the system to the point where, as the old saying goes, you can't um, make someone believe something that it, their salary depends on them believing it, you know, whatever, you, you know the, the quote that I'm butchering here, but that's the point, yeah, there's a lot of people whose livelihoods, or at least the way they have structured their lives, depends on this tyrannical structure, and thus they are actually incentivized to keep it in place, so the real solution then is to incentivize the other side, no, 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 the real incentive is liberty is the destruction of that system. And how do we incentivize it? We don't do it simply by writing screeds against the government. We don't do it just by mocking or satirizing the government. Those are all tools. We should keep them in our tool belt and and use them judiciously. But the real point is to create a system outside of that system of tyranny, outside that people can directly experience the benefits from, i.e., Agorism, the gray and the black markets, the things you are not supposed to be involved in. But look, people over there are thriving while when there's a cataclysm that that serves the benefits of the people in power who want a great reset, for example, and they declare a pandemic and say, you're not an essential worker, you have to stay home and you're unemployed now, ha ha ha. You know, your business is gone, everything you've worked for your whole life. Oh, by the way, we're going to degrade the currency and you're going to have absolutely nothing to show for a lifetime of labor. Maybe then people will realize, oh, maybe I should be over in these gray and black markets working on these decentralized uh, things that, that they don't have any control over. And I can work under the table directly for other people and directly experience the benefits of it. So an important point of the solution is not just ridicule is not just anti-state it's actually the building up of a different a different system entirely that people can experience those benefits from because until that exists no one's going to step out outside of the system that's keeping them alive that's an excellent point that vladimir putin made when he was uh being interviewed by by oliver stone he said this is you know some amazing amazing christian architecture you have here uh uh, you know, Mr. Putin, and he goes, and he goes, yeah, well, after the fall of communism, people needed something to believe in. And and then they just keep going. And I go, that is so profound. And Putin is so in the know. So a uh, former KGB officer, he just has a general understanding. It's second nature. This is how I operate this, uh, this thing. Um, that, uh, that, that uh, allowing people to sort of fill the hole that the state currently does, you know, lo- looking to someone to admire, uh, how do I know it's right or wrong? There's the law. Well, if you take that away, that you really are. I mean, when you say uh, when people kneel during the national anthem in America, there are some people that lose it to the nth degree. People that don't respect, you know, uh, Barack Obama during his reign. People on the left lost it then. So uh, that is um, something that uh, I think is really important to uh, recognize. Uh, the opening quote at the beginning was me quoting myself uh, from a speech I gave uh, called uh, Case for Anarchism. You could find that on my channel. Um, that is where I uh, actually met our friend Ernie Hancock when I gave that speech in Phoenix, Arizona. So uh, final thoughts on the book in closing. 
Let me just stress once again, this is 500-year-old wisdom, but it really is timeless. It could have been written 1,500 years ago or 3,000 years ago, or it could be written 1,000 years hence, and it would still be absolutely as relevant. Um, Rothbard really points that out in his introductory essay, which um, he goes into some depth about the context of this and why this is an important treatise, because it is timeless in that sense. A lot of the political philosophy and things coming out of that era was very much in the the context of that moment and with regards to this or that particular king but no this is this is much more timeless than that and that's why it's important uh, on another note i would say that the re- rereading the rothbard introduction to this once again gives me a sort of pining for a time that i never even really lived through but a time when it was a more literally a more literate society just a few decades ago where people would not only be expected to read books like this, but to have sort of the, the background knowledge and be able to pull out references from 100-year-old books that make this point and 58-year-old books that make that point and point to page numbers. I mean, there's real scholarship that goes into this. And the, the most disappointing part of that is realizing that wasn't so exceptional at the time. An academic would have been expected to write an introduction like this. At this time, reading it in today's context, it's actually exceptional. Wow, this guy has so many references for everything that he talks about. How the hell did he keep that all in his head? Um, well, there you go. That's that, 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 was, that was the norm at one point. So we are increasingly an, I won't say illiterate, a post-literate society where people will watch videos like this one a thousand times more likely than they will ever read a book or crack open a book like this one. And that is to the detriment of human society generally because there is some valuable wisdom in works like this. So I know that there are going to be people who are going to feel the urge to comment on our conversation without having read the book. I would implore you, please, if you find anything that we have talked about today interesting, whether you agree or disagree, please read the book. Go back to the actual source material. I'm telling you, this is not a big book. It will not take you long to get through it, and you will be a richer and better person for having gone through it. Even if you do disagree with it, you will have a better understanding of what the argument is and what it rests on. Excellent. So again, the uh, two must-see videos of James Corbett, who is Bill Gates and The Secret Life of Timothy McVeigh. My Corbett gotcha question at the end of all of our discussions. Here it is. All right, James, I have a magical wand and I can make it so you can interview any living person alive today. Who is it and what would you ask them? I, uh, I'll take an easy out. I'll say Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't even think he's still alive, but hey, if he was, that would make one hell of an interview, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Hey, thank you so much for watching Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone. James Corbett, thank you for your time. Thank you.